good to see you this morning. Last week I said, when we, in my lesson, our lesson, that it was the end of, of the study uh, or the Beatitudes. It, it was the end of the Beatitudes, but um, as you received, there's one final thing that we're going to address. Now, the backstory on that particular title is, uh, and this will, this will uh, date me along with you. If, if you date me how old I am, I'm going to throw it back at you, okay? 1971, there was a show that came out, uh, had Peter Falk in it, Columbo. And <clears throat> I just thought that was the greatest show I'd ever seen because he was just a very unusual character. Uh, he would go in, he always seemed disheveled. He, he drove an old Volvo, was always chewing on a cigar, looked just always like he needed to have cleaned up the day before, you know. But he was very, very bright, very brilliant, very good detective. And I always enjoyed when he was um, when he was asking questions to those that he was investigating. You know, if you saw it, you'd see him. He'd walk out, and the and the suspect was was thought, oh man, that's over. He'd always turn back, and he and he would always say, oh, there's one final thing. And when he would and he was asking that question to to let them sweat till the next time he came in. Well. Uh, as I was finishing up throughout the Beatitudes, it, it is very apparent that this section we're going to deal is, is has to do with along that line of thinking. This is, there's one final thing, one more thing, that I want you as disciples, as he was talking to the twelve, I want you to understand. So, you know, we have the idea of all of the Beatitudes that he... Again, you know, recounting, recapturing, reimagining. He saw the multitudes, the multitudes came. He sat down and he drew the disciples to him and he was talking specifically to them. And I, like I say, I easily imagine that he would glance at the multitudes and then he would, he would teach and he would tell the disciples what they needed to understand about the Christian life. And that's why we have the blessedness of the Christian life. But this one final thing, one final thing is I think, I think that, you know, when he was talking to them about this, it's very specific to them. The Beatitudes are forever, but to them, he was pointing out something very, very important. Let me read it, and, and you, you'll allow me, if you'll be patient with me this morning, I'm just simply going to think aloud, because a lot of things, uh, I'm, I'm never for sure how I'm going to get into something. I know I'm going to get into it. I'm just not for sure how. But let me read this, and perhaps it'll be, we'll be able to unfold this. After he finished the Beatitudes, the list, he then said to the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Now, let me inject something here. This word earth is different than the next word that will be used, all right? The word earth here means you are the salt of your land, of your region. 
So let's extrapolate your town. You are the salt where you are. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then he says, you are the light of the world, all the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I think language-wise and in the structure of this, this is one final thing. He's wanting to make sure that they understand. I mean, the Beatitudes actually are a good read. They're a good ethical read. It's something that we can... uh, uh, put a plaque uh, on our wall and look at it and say, oh, that, that, that's, a, that's a great piece of literature, biblical literature. But what Jesus is doing and instructing his disciples here is having a plaque is not good enough. You are the salt of your land and you are the light of the world. And as I was thinking about this and trying to uh, determine how I was going to uh, get into this, again, one of my, uh, well, what, what, what struck me was this. Jesus in the Beatitudes told his disciples the, the ingredients of what makes a life that is blessed. So the ingredient is very, very important. But if you misuse the ingredients or you don't use them, you come up with a fiasco, which leads me to my final story about my failures. Years ago, and I could have told you this, I'm just not for sure. Did I tell you the story about the caramel ice cream? I've already told that. I'll be 70, so I'm going to tell it again. All right. That, I had made a point to try to, you know, we had an ice cream social and all of that. Um, And I had the wild idea that caramel, caramel popcorn ice cream would be a great thing. All right, so I did that, put it in there an hour before then. um, It came out mush. And, I, and, and I, we were an hour from it, so I ran up to Brahms. I, I emptied my freezer, ran up to Brahms, bought two gallons of French chocolate almond. Came back, I had 10, 15 minutes. I stuffed it down in mine, put my cap on, came over. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to come over and bring it. Brought it over. The first one in line was, uh, was uh, Gary Gallant. And he said, oh, I just love chocolate almond. So he took one bite. He looked at me and said, man, that tastes exactly like Brahms. <laughs> the point of that is, number one, you cannot misuse the ingredients. And secondly, people will know. They, they know. <laughs> they know. Now, back to this. We can know intellectually like the Beatitudes. But if we don't live that life, we say we're a Christian, but we don't live that life People know. People know if we say one thing and do another. 
And so as I was thinking about this, I, I was thinking about what Jesus was warning the disciples to get, this, this final thing. You know, he wants them to understand. Okay, for instance, and I'll just go through them very quickly so that I can get to the real uh, crux of what I want to say this morning. When, when, he, when he talked about blessed are the poor in spirit, I think Jesus could see in the multitudes, of course, that's what they needed, but then he, he, he looked at the disciples and he says, this is an ingredient you have, that's the seasoning you've got to, you've got to have, you've got to live that. People need that, you have it, don't misuse it. Or the thing with uh, mourning or, or, or being uh, you know, aware of our own sin. I think Jesus was emphasizing to them the disciples that you you cannot have these things just for yourself and not use them whatsoever it has to come to the people themselves and so when he was talking to them about you are the salt of your land it brings it down to a very very personal intimate level that the Christian witness that some people see and you've heard this all your life the only Bible some people may read is the life that you and I live. And if we're not living it according to the ingredients that we've been given, vis-a-vis the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and uh, the Beatitudes, if we're not living that, then people know if we're imitating or we've gone up to Brahms and bought somebody else's or something like that, people know. The difference. Jesus spent a lot of time pinpointing that about hypocrisy with those who would say one thing, but yet they would live another. Emerson said, you know, and so did uh, Will. I, I, can't, I can't hear what you're saying because your actions are getting in the way. So here he's looking at them, I think, and he's saying, understand this. There's final thing of this teaching. You you are the seasoning. You are the salt. You are that for your land, for your family, for your people. You are. Sometimes we think that God is, uh, we hope, God is going to split the heavens and solve all of the problems that we have in our lives, in our world, in our nation, in our community everywhere that it's God going to do it but yet Jesus says something different here he says you are the salt of this land now when we talk about salt here are the three things that we know for sure about it salt is the greatest purity agent there is it cleanses disinfects it's a preservative it preserves and it also gives flavor so let me apply that to the Christian life. First of all, we live in a land. We live in a land that needs a heavy dose of salt. Why? Because our land, our land, our realm, our region is um, impure. We have so much impurity going on that, that the multitudes and people, they need to hear and see what true purity is. So, Yes, I can understand what he means. You're the salt. Preservative. We live in a land and a time and in a culture and in a season 
where things that were are not any longer. And what Jesus is saying is you are the salt of your land, so our land needs to know what goodness is, what righteousness is. They need to know who God is. And God can only be seen and understood just like we discovered our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. For some people, the only way they'll discover God is by discovering Him through our lives and our attitude of God and therefore preserving that idea of God. But then flavor, I thought about that. Too many people think that the Christian life is a, is a um, I don't know, a rabbit hole. There's no joy in it. It's not delightful. Yet Jesus, throughout these Beatitudes, established it is extremely delightful to live after God's heart. There is a beauty to it. There is a calmness to it. There is purpose to it. And so salt, as it gives flavor to any food, so does the Christian life. It gives a flavor that can only be derived by God. You are the salt of your land, is what he is saying. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, well, I think he wanted the disciples to understand that even though he had taught all these things of the Beatitudes and they had it, they were able to maybe apply it, uh, you know, to their lives. The deal is, is it's not just for you. It has been given to you to give to others. And so as Christians, it's great when we learn or when we hear or when we apply something in our life, but we cannot just keep it to ourselves because salt, if it's not used, is useless. And the Christian life, if it's not used, if it's not applied, then it's useless. It has no bearing whatsoever. And if you stop and think about it, that's exactly what we see time and time again is that someone who will say that they are a Christian, but yet they do not live the Christian life, they are viewed as a useless endeavor. So to the disciples, I think that, yes, he spoke about the blessings of the Beatitudes, and we, we have that list, all of those things, uh, being peaceful, you know, being meek, uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's another thing we need to preserve. It is a virtue to seek after good things, not bad. We live in a land and we live in a time and in a season and in a region that righteousness does not, is not palatable to people. It's not a flavor they want. Well, we need to preserve that flavor. We need to live it in such a way that we believe that righteousness is wonderful and thereby people understand and see that. Do not let it get lost. All these things is what he's saying to the disciples. Don't let it get lost within your mind or heart and never applied. Why? Because you are the salt of your land. Then he goes on, and as I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking that, that what Jesus wanted, not only for them to know, 
but he wanted them to know these things so that they then could share. Why? Well, Jesus would explain, which we're getting ready to go through several weeks. He would warn and explain. He will not be there with them forever. And that's why he said in John 8, I find this very interesting for what he says in our text. He says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay. Now, the word there, following, means, well, you know, we follow a captain, we follow a coach, we follow a counselor, we follow the laws to be a useful citizen, we follow an argument. And Jesus said, if you follow me, you will never be in darkness. Therefore, you have light or you are light. And that's exactly what he said. Secondly, not only are you the salt of your land, but also you are you are the light of the world. Again, sometimes we wish God would split the skies and take care of everything, right? We wish that he would just wipe. No, I shouldn't say that. He would deal with evil. I've read some of the most horrendous things this week of just the evilness of an individual or people who have abused, who are leaders, who are in politics, who are just, you know, common people. The one thing that unites it is there's evil amongst us. And it is powerful. And sometimes you just shake your head when you read something and you think that needs to be wiped off the face of the earth, period. And that's what we wish God would do. But here's what Jesus says. You are the light for your world. Pretty heavy. A lot of responsibility but one thing I learned, if you do what Jesus says, it may not make sense, but it always turns out right, always. And so he is telling his disciples that they are the light of the world. Here's what it says. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then glorify your heavenly Father. The Christian life in its purest form does not bring honor to us. The Christian life, the Christ-like life, living brings honor not to us, but to our Heavenly Father. And if it brings honor to God, then truly it is the light, and it is the light that Jesus refers to as himself. I am the light of the world. As I was thinking about the light of the world, I was thinking about, okay, a light. What does that mean? Well, first of all, a light is something, as Jesus points out, First and foremost, that can be seen. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of darkness, a long, long distance of darkness, it's incredible how a small 
beam of light can show miles. I mean, miles. It's amazing how powerful a light is in a fog. When you see the lighthouses on the, on the coasts and things, how powerful they are and how important they are. So, so a light is meant to be seen. And so Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You're meant to be seen. We don't live our lives in secrecy. We don't live our lives, uh, you know, cowered down. We live our lives as a light to our Heavenly Father. Whatever, whatever befalls, that's what we do. It's kind of like the apostle said, it's better to obey God than to obey men. So we live our lives as a light. But a light also, very important, like the lighthouse. I love lighthouses, by the way. I, I just fascinated with them. A light is a guide. Now, not only is a candle a guide, thy word, the psalmist wrote, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You know, a light is a guide. And our world needs a light that guides because we have a history of humanity that tells us whenever there is not light, darkness descends, as we read, on the face of the deep. And the only way that that darkness can be removed is by the stirring of God's Spirit on that and give light. And that light is a guide. But also a light, along with the, the idea of the light, a light also is a, is a warning light. Something that warns you, don't go here. That's why lighthouses are situated where they are. Because there's a shore or there's reefs or there's shoals, different things that are very, very dangerous for the ships that go. Well, as it's true with, in the shipping, it's also true in life. Sometimes we need a warning light of some sort to keep us off the shoals or off a wreckage of a shore. We need them. We need them. And what Jesus says to his disciples is, you are the light of the world. Not everyone will listen to a warning. Not everyone will pay attention to it. Some people think that they are an exception to the rule. But ultimately, the light always validates itself. And people may not listen to us. They may not um, spend a lot of time talking to us initially. But I, my experience is no matter how hard and how, let's say, insulting someone may be initially with you on your job or in your family, when the waters get rough, and there seems to be damage coming in their lives, they'll find their way to you, sometimes in private, but they'll find their ways to you and ask your opinion or your guidance or something. Why? Because they have seen a life lived honoring God and Jesus Christ. And so... When Jesus was talking to the disciples, I think he was preparing them for the life that they were saying they wanted to live, but also how important that life is. None of us, I don't believe, on the moment that we got up from an altar 
or we got up from asking forgiveness of our sins, whenever it was, none of us, I don't think, understood how important our lives would become eternally to others from that moment on. We just assumed we were taking care of our own baggage. And yes, that is true. But from that moment that we, we rose up and we said, I'm going to be a Christian or I'm going to follow Christ, our lives took on a different meaning. We, we became, our lives began to be a salt for those around us and a light to how we live. And as we have gone through life, that's exactly what we see. We, we see that that is what is needed in our world. So what Jesus is saying here is you are the light. And I like what he says, let your light shine before men. Let it, let it be seen. Let, don't, don't put it under a bushel basket. Don't hide the light. Well, let me put it in these ways. Never be apologetic for being a Christian of what you believe. It may be unpopular. It may be politically incorrect. It may be whatever label that someone decides to give you. But never be apologetic for the light that you've been given to show those around you. Never. Hold it high, live it well, and be well. I think that's what Jesus Christ is saying to them. Now, again, they, didn't, they couldn't comprehend what they themselves would go through, and they stumbled around. You know, I, I think uh, one classic is when Peter said he would die for the Lord. He would do everything for the Lord, but on that night that was dark, he stumbled. He did not, he laid the light down. But later in his life, he picked it back up, and he lived the rest of his life holding the light up of Jesus Christ because he knew the difference that it would make. And so Christ, our Lord, tells the disciples, and I think he says to us also, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As I said, it's possible to do good works, but you do it for the wrong reason. You do it because they're just good works. But what he says here is your heavenly father needs to receive glory. You know, the word good is, is an interesting, interesting word uh, in various languages, uh, particularly, um, particularly in our language, we have so many uses for the word good. But in this language, that in, in the Greek and in, the, in, and in the, you know, what we're talking about here, two words are used for good. The first word is a word that came out of the Greek philosophers, and, it, and it's a word that just simply, it just simply means agathos. It just means it's just good. I don't know, I can't see that it's good. It's just, it's good. And I, and I kind of imagine like a, a piece of metal. I don't know if it's good, but the engineer says, no, it's good. It's good. That's one kind of good. But that's not the word used here. The word used here, you know, good, your good works is, is a different word which means not only good in itself, but beautiful. There's a great example that I want to share with you. 
Michelangelo, 16th century, great, great genius. He, he did a, and you've probably seen it, he did a sculpture called the Madonna della Pieta. Now, what it is, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's Mary holding the crucified Christ, her son, and it's beautiful. The marble, yes, was beautiful. I mean, it, it was good in and of itself, but he shaped it to where it became not only good, it was already good, the marble was good. As a block of marble, it was just a block. But the, the miners would say, this is a good piece of marble. But what Michelangelo did is he brought that to another level. His sculpture made it not just good, it made it beautifully good. That's what our works should be, is there works that bring honor to our Heavenly Father. Beautiful. It's not us. It's not what we do. It's not how we do it. It's what we do that brings honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this, one more thing or the final thing, I think Jesus was telling the disciples, I've given you everything you need. Now just use it because it's very important that you don't waste it, that you become useless, and that you hide what you've been given. So in closing, here's what Jesus said. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. They don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good and beautiful works that bring honor to your heavenly Father. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rich words that you have preserved for us to discover and to come to know the wonder and joy it is to serve you. We thank you, of course, for your mercy and your forgiveness and your love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. But Lord, I'm thankful you did not leave us where we were, but you sculpted us to where we become instruments that we can show and reveal the beauty that, it, that there is in serving you. I pray today, Lord, that we as your children would, would live our lives such that it would always bring honor to you. And we'll give you thanks for that in our Lord's name. Amen. Let's stand this morning and request this song as a kind of a song of commitment we can just sing. I encourage you to sing this because um, it's a great song. That's what we, it's a prayer. It's a prayerful song. Brother Ed, what page? 368. 368. Let's sing together this as God's people.
as we sing. I'll tell the world.